Some of you have questions about who is Jesus. Is he just a good man? Is he a good teacher? Maybe you would claim yes. Is he a God? The Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Is that who Jesus is? And if, if it is, are you following him? Are you following him? Because we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Mark, in the book of Mark, that there's far more to loving God, to following Jesus, than just knowing intelligent facts about his identity. But there is a heart worship of him, a bowing of my will to him. As we concluded last week's chapter, whosoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus ended, we ended chapter 8 with the radical call, if you will, an extreme call for obedience, the call to follow Jesus, a disciple, a true disciple, is nothing more than the call to come and die, to take up your cross. That's exactly what that means, to take up your cross, to crucify your will, your desires, your wants, your dreams, your beliefs, your everything, and you lay that at the feet of Jesus. And he says, in that, in that is life. That's where you find life. So that's been my prayer for you this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to, it's a long, it's a long chapter. Uh, we're going to cover all of it. Right on. So you guys ready for this? I'll tell you what. So as you're flipping there, I will start off with a story. Stories are helpful. When I was, uh, mo most of you might not know this, I was homeschooled between third and sixth grade. So I know how to do the homeschool high five. And I know all sorts of other things about homeschoolers. Um, I was there. So I was homeschooled and uh, from third to sixth grade, I hated it. Let's just say I hated it. Um, I wasn't, I don't know, I just didn't like it. It was just not, not for me. I learned a few things, actually, and eventually this is what I learned. I learned the grading habits of my mother very well. <laughs> and I learned how much work I had to do to actually trick her to think I was doing all of it. And so I would get a few answers right in the beginning of the assignment, because I knew that's what she would check. And then at the end, I would just fill in numbers. I was just making stuff up. It, was, it looked busy, and I learned that that worked. I also learned if I came out of the room too soon, I learned that she would be like, uh-uh, there's no way you got all that work done. So I learned if I stayed in there for about four hours, played quietly, and did about 30 minutes worth of work, I was good to go the rest of the day. It was awesome for a while. If only, if only I had studied my books as much as I studied my mother, I probably would have been a whole lot better when I went to seventh grade. Sixth grade, homeschool, seventh grade, I entered the public school system for the first time from a kid living in Germany coming to America, culture shock. Culture shock. And somehow, somehow, I don't know how, somehow 
I was placed in a class, Algebra 1, advanced. I don't know how this happened. All I know is the first day of class, I had never seen the alphabet and numbers combined in any sort of sentence. And I was totally lost. It was, it was bad. I'm pretty sure I failed every quiz, every test, everything that time. I just, I didn't get it. My mind, I just, X plus 3 equals 4. I, I don't know what's going on. I'm a seventh grader, right? Because all that time I had been skirting my work playing around, and I think one of the most loving things that somebody did for me was my teacher, Miss Gordon. I remember her very much, and I credit her with a whole lot. Miss Gordon had a conference with my mom. She said, I want you to hold Randy back. Get him out of the advanced program for eighth grade. Let him take regular math with all the rest of the students, and of course, I'm like, oh, no, I'm a fool. I'm so Dumb. I know what this is going to mean. This guy can't cut it. Take him out. Let him sit with the class. It'll give him a chance to catch up. When he comes to high school, he will excel in every... He'll, he'll be fine. He'll, he'll be absolutely fine. That's exactly what happened. I took that time, and that time for me was a reorienting time. I, I got my feet underneath me. I learned what, what X was and how this all works out. And I came into ninth grade, and... By God's grace, when I graduated high school, math was actually my strongest suit and still is to this day. Not as strong as it is for Uncle Wes, but the Lord gives us all differently, right? It is still my strongest suit to this day, and I thank Miss Gordon for that. It was because of her insight, her, her desire to see me shaped and reorient me as a student that very much helped me. Now, this is exactly what we're going to see in chapter 9, chapter 10. Jesus, for the first time, Mark chapter 8, had told his disciples, I am going to die. I'm going to be rejected, and then after three days, I'm going to rise again. And for them, for them, the concept of a crucified Messiah didn't compute, just like it was for me. It just didn't go together. How does this work? And so from chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus is going to be reorienting his disciples to the scriptures. He's going to be reorienting them to what a disciple is. They're thinking they're about to live a high and lofty life when Jesus overthrows the government. But yet he says, you will die. You will deny yourself and take up your cross, just like me. So he's reorienting. This is exactly where we find ourselves in chapter 9. This crucified Messiah was unintelligible. And what we're going to see is that the disciple-following life of the followers of Christ, the disciple of Jesus, is filled with pain and self-denial and heartache. But it is not for the sake of pain itself. It is always, always, always lived in life and in light of the person and work of Jesus, of the person and work of Jesus. We deny ourselves not just because denying yourself is good, in light of who Jesus is. So there's pain, but there's also promise and power. So we need the Lord to help us understand these things. We're going to get some of the best glimpses in all of Scripture about who Jesus is in this chapter. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
May your gospel come upon those in here this morning that maybe they don't know you, they don't believe in Jesus, maybe they're just checking Jesus out for the first time. Lord, may your words be received with full conviction and power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give them eyes to see and ears to hear, to see that Jesus is the only one who can deliver them from the wrath to come. Jesus is the only one that can give them the life and satisfaction they so long for and that you love them and you offer it to them freely. Lord, do this for your namesake, I pray. Amen. Verses 2 to 9. 2 to 9, this is a point. A glimpse of the glory of Christ sustains a life of pain. A glimpse of the glory of Christ sustains a life of pain. Every gospel has this section right after the radical announcement of Jesus concerning his death and discipleship. Every gospel has this order. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, transfiguration. Matthew and Luke all hold the same thing. Verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant and tensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. A glimpse of the glory of Christ sustains a life of pain. A glimpse of God's person and his work, who he is, sustains a life of pain. There's a lot of questions here we just won't have time to answer. For example... What does he mean that some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power? Or there's a conversation for those of you who are, are interested in eschatology and the, the timeline and Elijah and is he the John the Baptist or, or whatever. There's a lot of questions here that we could spend time on, but there's primarily one point. Jesus is God. Jesus is not just man. Jesus is God. And I hear the dog barking, and I think that's in response to the passage. So he's, he's barking with us. Those are amens. I'll make of one note here about the kingdom of God coming with power. Some of you will not taste death. Historically speaking, the church has held that to be the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. John Calvin is what he said. The revelation of the heavenly glory, which Christ began with the resurrection and then more fully offered when he sent the Holy Spirit and worked marvelous deeds of power. That's what essentially he's saying. In the New Testament, this is common. 
We want to know, John Calvin is super smart, but ultimately we want to know what Scripture has to say. In the New Testament, the resurrection is the decisive, final display of the kingdom of God come in power for this advent. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That is the most decisive display of power this time Jesus comes, Romans 1.4. And Jesus, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 13.4. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you we live with him by the power of God. Philippians 3. 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Over and over, this is just a four small little glimpsing over, we could go over and over. The decisive work of the kingdom power when Jesus came was demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead. And that's ultimately, if you're here and you don't you, you have questions about Christianity, about the teachings and everything like that. All of those things are peripheral. All of them are peripheral. What does Jesus say about abortion? What does he say about poverty and injustice and homosexuality and all these things? All of those things are ultimately peripheral. The question that you need to wrestle with is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Not what you like about what he taught, because if he rose from the dead, then everything he taught is authoritative, and we would do well to listen. It's all about, did he rise from the dead? And I, there's massive historical evidence for the fact that he did. Massive. So, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Most likely it is referring to his resurrection. That is the final inauguration. The kingdom of God is here, and it is here in power the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit. We'll move on. There much more could be said about that. So right after he says that, then there's a transfiguration. This is a foretaste of that power. So yes, there's pain. Yes, there's denial. Yes, there's the cross. And yes, there's promise of pleasure and glory. And Jesus gives Peter and James and John a, a small foretaste of that. And it says, and he was transfigured. That word is, and literally is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis. That's where we, what do we think of when we think of metamorphosis? If you're maybe in your early 20s, you might think of Power Rangers. You're changing, mighty, morphing Power Rangers. If you're, if you're in school, okay, guys, I'm, I'm a loser, I know, okay? If you're in school, you might think of a butterfly, a little caterpillar changing into a beautiful butterfly, or maybe a tadpole turning into a frog. It's metamorphing, it's changing. It can also go for, and this would be a very illustrative teaching no matter what, is organic matter can morph into solid rock. So I think in our Hebrews uh, chapter 3, some of you in Sunday school went over, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes organic matter can morph into rock not careful. 
If you just think on that, that'll probably give you a lot of illustrations to think through for this lesson. They saw Jesus transfigured. We see this word two other times in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. Both are instructive for what is going on. Jesus was changed, was transfigured physically. His, his face was shining, was radiant like the sun, Luke tells us. His, white, his clothes were so white that they were nothing on earth was like them. And we see this again, Romans 12, to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, and we all, Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, what were they seeing here? The glory of God. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed, as your word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, both, both passages, both of those I just read, have in mind an internal moral transformation that's happening as a result of beholding the glory of God. Now, Jesus, like I said, his was physical and outward. Now, what can we learn? If there is no internal transformation because you have beheld the glory of Christ, then you will never experience a physical outward manifestation. That's complicated. Can you say it better? If you come to Jesus and there's no change... You will never see any change past that because there is a disconnect somewhere. Or as Hebrews says it, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. There is a need for us to be transformed likewise. And how do we do that? By beholding the glory of Christ. And we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of Christ, being transformed from one degree of glory into another. We see a few other people there with him. Elijah, Moses, these guys represent the law and the prophets. Christ fulfilled them. And then all of a sudden, and for those of you who know the book of Exodus and Moses and going up on the Mount Sinai, there's the parallels here are too many to, to take time to name out. But a cloud comes upon them. And a voice, the second voice in the book of Mark. This, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. Do what he says. Follow him to the ends of the world, to death if need be. But listen to him. It is worth it. A glimpse of the glory of God will sustain a life of pain. This is exactly what sustained Moses, is it not? God said, ask anything you want, and Moses' request, show me your glory. And that fleeting glimpse, that fleeting glimpse of God sustained Moses during his 40 years of trials. Because he knew what was coming. It was worth it. It was worth it. Augustine, the church father, he would say this, the world is loved but let him, Christ, be preferred whom the world, by whom the world is made. Great is the world, but greater is he by whom the world is made. Fair is the world, but fairer is he by whom the world is made. Sweet 
is the world, but sweeter is he by whom the world was made. Evil is the world, and good is he by whom the world was made. Jesus. Who are you worshiping this morning? Who is Jesus? He holds out comfort. Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort and my affliction. Your promises give me life. This is my comfort and my affliction that your promises give me life. A glimpse of the glory of God will sustain your life of pain. Number two. Number two, failures focus our faith on Jesus. So he's reorienting the disciples. This is, there's glory and pain. There's, there's failure also, but our failures serve to focus our faith on Jesus. That's from verses 14 to 29. I'm not going to read it. I'll explain it. Jesus was up on the mountain, and then he comes down, and he's, he's immediately confronted with a trial. Mountaintop experiences are good, right? We all enjoy that. The mountaintop experience is refreshing, it's, it's encouraging, but that's not where we're meant to live in this life. Jesus wants his disciples down in the valley of service with him because our mountain comes at death with Christ. So mountaintop experiences are good, but he wants us in the valley with him, serving. Now what happens? He comes up and there's a crowd and they're all arguing. Everybody's arguing. You can picture just like a mob of bickering people. Yeah, yeah, it's loud and chaotic and it's the sense of the scene you get. What happens? Jesus said, what's going on? Essentially, a man brings his boy, his, his son. If you have a son, maybe you can imagine this, or, or a daughter. He brings his son who's, who's mute and is possessed with a demon. And he brings him to the disciples, actually to Jesus, but he's gone. He's on the mountain, and, and he asks him to, to heal them, to heal the boy. And So they've done this before, right? You remember chapters 3 and 5 and 6? Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. And to heal? Yeah, they've done this before. Sure, sure, ma'am. Hey, you know what? Jesus is up on the mountain right now. I'll help you. I'll help you. I can do this. I've done this before. I got this. Be gone, right? And nothing happens. Nothing happens. They're, they try and they try and they try and, and nothing happens. How come? Every other time it worked, how come not this time? And they tell Jesus, your disciples were not able to cast him out. Now, you can imagine how this would reflect on Jesus. Your disciples failed to cast him out. What does that mean about your message, about your power, about your credibility on the line? It's exactly what happened. The father of the boy is talking to Jesus, and Jesus asks him, how long has the boy been like this? And Jesus responds, or the boy, res father responds, he's been like this from his childhood, since he was little, and often it seizes him, it throws him into the fire or into the water to destroy him. And he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. It's the words of the father to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. 
Jesus pauses. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. All things are possible for the one who believes. In other words, the burden, O oh man, is not on me, for I surely can. Of course I can. The burden is on you. Will you believe? And then all of a sudden, Jesus, in a mighty demonstration of power, delivers the boy. He collapses. The crowd even thinks he's dead. And Jesus takes him up by the hand. And the boy's healed. And he gets up and he's fine. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. What, what does this hold out for us today in the 21st century? One, I'd ask, have you ever been failed by a church leader? You ever been failed by a church leader? Felt betrayed by a church leader? Maybe a pastor, maybe as a close leader, a teacher in your church? And it gave you a bad taste in your mouth. It might have even caused you to doubt your very beliefs about God. Just like this man, if, if you can. Of course God can. Of course God can. Of course Christ can. Don't let the failures of his people take your eyes off his power. When people fail you, when, when I fail you, don't stop trusting in Christ. Cling to him. And then there's also a lesson here for us. Our failures, disciples, our church leaders, you, Christian, your failures, focus us and focus our faith on Jesus. What does he say? They ask him later. They're confused. They ask him in private, what's going on? How come, how come we couldn't do it? How come we weren't able? And he says, this kind cannot come out but by prayer. Earlier, if we had read, he rebuked them for their faithlessness. So there's a connection between our faith and prayer. What is it? Faith is painted on the canvas of prayer. Prayer is an expression of our faith. Prayer is one of the primary expressions of our faith. It is the gem of prayer that faith is exercised in, if you will. When we stop working with our own strength, when I stop, I got, I got to get busy. I got things to do. I've got a to-do list that hits the floor. I've got to get working. And everything in me tells me to get moving. What are you doing? Say amen. You're done. It's a massive act of prayer to hand all of that over to God and say, Lord, you told me to speak with you, to pray apart from you. I can do nothing. And so I'm going to trust this massive to-do list and my time to you that you will work all things together for good. It's a massive exercise of prayer and faith when we do it. So I would ask you by way of application, what's one of the chief signs in your life? So you, we're all here. I think we would all agree. I don't want to be faithless. Even as a Christian here, I don't, I don't want to be faithless. How, how do I know if I'm being faithless or faithful? How do I know? Or well, we don't have to look any further than your prayer life. How is your prayer life? 
Are you daily spending time in fellowship with God? Are you daily walking with Him and thinking about Him and thinking on Him, or are you trusting in your own strength to do what God has called you to do? And when you do that, we will be exactly like the disciples. Fail, fail, fail. One pastor said it like this, past demonstrations of power, the disciples, is no guarantee for future demonstrations of might. Past demonstrations of power is no guarantee for a future demonstration of might. It all requires the continual, daily abiding in Christ, taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Jesus. In Jeremiah 17, this is what the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Before you ever fail outwardly or physically at anything God has called you to do, we have failed inwardly with our hearts turning away from the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength. So brothers and sisters, we never, ever outgrow our daily need to be with Jesus. Even the mighty disciples and the apostles never outgrow their daily, daily need to exercise faith and reliance on Jesus. So rather than dwelling in our failures, one pastor said, failures can either make us bitter or make us better. Allow your failures to focus your faith on Christ. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Three, Three, transformation occurs through reorientation. Transformation occurs through reorientation. Like I said, the disciples are getting their lives reoriented. When you come to Jesus, you're living in one direction, you're walking in one direction, and that whole world it gets turned on its head with new values, new desires, new beliefs, all of it, such that we need a total home makeover. Total transformation is what Jesus is doing. So his disciples, he's talking with them. They're, they're, he's teaching them about his death and his resurrection, and then they start arguing. They start arguing about who is the greatest. You ever had that argument with somebody? Guys, we do this sometimes. Maybe we're arm wrestling, and it's like, oh, yeah. Let's end this argument right now. Who's the greatest? Or maybe it's we do it on a far more subtle level. Women, even dads, we compare ourselves to one another silently. She's cute. I wish I could look like that. Or I can't believe they let their kids do this. Or I can't believe that they're getting these vaccine shots. Or I can't believe that they're eating this or whatever, whatever have you. We constantly are doing this comparison thing. We compare silently still yet. Who is the greatest? Or it might express itself in more outwardly malicious ways. Bitter, bitterness, gossip, slander. When, when I'm going about talking about, you know, Uncle Wes, I don't like Uncle Wes. He's so good at math. And, hey, Raymond, you know, Uncle Wes, he, 
He said two plus two is four. I know he's right, but he's so conceited. He thinks he doesn't even need a calculator. That's another form of comparison because by nature, the, the negative side of that is I am better. How I do it is better. We still struggle with this. They were arguing and comparing themselves with one another. Who is the greatest? And they get caught like a little child with his hand in the cookie jar. Jesus asks them, hey, what were you guys talking about on the way here? Oh, what? what? Um, no, we, were, we weren't talking about, about anything. Well, what was it? I, I heard you guys say something. No. You tell them. Right? Nobody says anything. Silence. Because they knew what they were arguing about. Jesus takes the moment to teach them. He sits them down. He sits down, calls them all around. If anyone, if anyone would be first or greatest, he must be the last of all and servant of all. If anybody would be first or greatest, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he takes a child. And if I had a child, I would stand him up here. Well, I do, but he's back there somewhere. And it, stand him up here. And Jesus places a child in the midst of them, and he takes the child in his arms. He says, whoever receives this child like this receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. What's the point? What is he trying to teach us. He is reorienting their thoughts about greatness. Greatness is often manifested through service. And generally, those who would seek to be great often get the hardest rebuke. Another way you could say it is greatness is often disguised as a broom or a diaper chain. Greatness is often disguised as a broom or a diaper change. Or we had a bunch of guys come and we had to unroll all this big, heavy carpet. You could say the kingdom of God sometimes advances one carpet roll at a time. One heavy carpet roll at a time. Whoever would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What's the point of having the child? Essentially, children in that culture were despised and looked down on. Actually, the same word for child is the same word they would use for servant. They were not held in high esteem. And so by such, they, as by proxy, they represent vulnerability and helplessness. And Jesus saying, when you reach out to one of these in my name, it's like receiving me. A helpless or vulnerable individual in my name is like receiving me. So greatness is not pursuing greatness. It's actually pursuing servanthood or being last. So total reorienting of ourselves. Transformation through reorientation. So I would ask, how, how in what ways, brother and sister, are you seeking to be great? Or another way to ask it, how are you exercising this through your service? Through your service of God, through your service of his people. We'll move on and finish up. The final point, I stole a quote from John Owen, famous quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
be killing sin or sin will be killing you. A low view of Christ will lead to a low view of sin. Plain and simple, a low view of the glory of God will lead to a low view of your sin. So how do you know if you have a low view of the glory of God? How do you view your sin? Do you justify it? Like, ah, it's small, that, that little sin, that's, I mean, I'm not that bad. You have a low view of the glory of God, if that's the case. But on the other hand, a glorious view of Christ a glorious view of God or of his glory as seen in verses 2 through 9 will lead to a horrific view of sin. Will lead to a terrible view of sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I think this is one of the reasons why this portion is in such proximity to the transfiguration of Christ. Because it's only in proper view of God's glory and his holiness and who Jesus is that we properly can see our sin. See, the disciples had tasted Christ's glory. They had seen his authority over the wind and the waves and all of these other things in creation. And then Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them about the radical war that we are to take against sin, the severity of sin. We're going to read verse 42 to 47 and 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand, if your hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. How else do you get around the radical nature of the words of Jesus? If your hand causes you to sin, sever it. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Tear it out. The disciples have a new view and a new attitude about sin in relation to Christ. Why? Because it is your sin that will cut you off from the glory of Christ. Now, it's times like these that proper biblical interpretation can save you a body limb. Because if you've noticed, I don't like sin, but I have all of my hands and all of my feet and my eyes for now. For now. There are some in church history who have taken this and failed to recognize the figure of speech and have literally emasculated themselves. Like Origen, the church father. This is not what Jesus has in mind. 
physically, but it is the extremity to which he is painting a picture for us that we should war against our sin. It is no small thing. It is never a small thing. It is never okay. Whenever I sin against my wife, she already knows. She is never to tell me, it's okay. It's okay. I forgive you. Because it is never, never, ever okay to sin. Jesus died for that. Your sin against God will cut you off. Remember the illustration of organic matter being turned into stone? Metamorphosis? It works both ways. Either we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind and that we are becoming more and more like Jesus, or we are giving ourselves to sin and our heart is hardening like stone to the glories of Christ. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh... You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In today's vernacular, if your phone causes you to sin, throw it away. If your television or internet access causing you to sin, cut it off. This is one of the reasons why I love the scene in Fireproof where he struggles with pornography and, and he sees his computer and he takes his computer outside and he's beating it with a bat. And his neighbor, who is a senior gentleman, is just like, like watering his plants or something and just like, what in the world is going on? I love that scene because it shows the radical nature of sin and the attempts we should go to to kill it. It is better to enter heaven or life smartphone-less and internet-less than to be thrown into hell with full access and full bars. Brothers and sisters, war against sin. Even if you don't see its immediate fruits, you might be like, hey, I've been doing this for a long time and my life is pretty good. The fruit of sin isn't always reaped in this life, but make no mistake about it, the harvest of destruction and wrath and fury will come when you die. It will come, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. The sum of the matter, being with Jesus demands losing something as precious and necessary as limbs and eyes because it separates you from Jesus and it's worth it. If being with Jesus costs you something precious, it's worth it. It's worth it. So I'm going to ask you here. Maybe you're here and you, you don't know Jesus or you know Jesus and you, you just you don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to ask you and give you the very call of Jesus to turn from your sin. You are here today by no accident. God had a divinely appointed place for you to be today, right here. And he demands for you, if your sin is going to cut you off from Christ, to turn and run. Turn and run to Jesus. Even as a believer, you might be caught and entangled in the web of sin, the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy 2 calls it, and it will destroy your soul. Fight it and run to Christ who alone can sever your sin. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for a glimpse of your glory. It alone satisfies, and you mean for us to, be, to look and to see and to be transformed as we gaze at Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us here daily, daily, to turn our eyes on Jesus, to exercise faith and trust in Jesus, that you lived for us and you died for sins and you rose again and you are alive, that all who turn and believe in you will have life in your name. Lord, give faith where my words cannot. May your name be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be